0: I went to talk to Brad Allen Williams in L.A. earlier this year, just as he was getting ready to release his album Economy. Brad and I had met when he lived in Brooklyn. We crossed paths working on a record for a singer-songwriter together, and I was struck then by his quiet intensity, his attention to detail, and his precision. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidren. Brad Allen Williams was clearly not only a great guitar player, but also a serious recording engineer. That's what I thought when I met him. And he was someone who understood both the technical and emotional sides to record making. I remember as we chatted after that recording session, he told me that he grew up in Memphis. So I asked him if he knew this person or that person, other musicians who I was aware of from Memphis, like the organ player Charlie Wood or the guitar player Doug Womble. And that day when we first met, Brad also mentioned that he was about to embark on a project with the singer Jose James. It was a tribute to Bill Withers. It seemed to me as if almost immediately after that, I started to see Brad everywhere I looked. Because in addition to playing with Jose James, he also bonded with the drummer in that band, the legendary Nate Smith. So Brad became a member of Nate's Kinfolk project. And then the two of them also began working with the singer Brittany Howard. There really was a moment where it seemed like every time I opened my computer or turned on the TV, I, there was Brad. That maybe speaks to the feedback loop or the bubble that I live in, but at least for the kind of thing that I was into, Brad was very present. So when I discovered that he was releasing a solo album, I was very eager to hear what that would be. And I made some assumptions about it that turned out to be pretty much totally incorrect. And that's partly due to the fact that he made his record with producer Pete Min for Pete's Colorfield label. I spoke to Pete Mint in my last episode, and in fact today's episode was recorded on the same day that I talked to Pete, so I was very much in the mood and the headspace to talk about this project and this way of working. Like all Color Field releases, Economy was born from an improvisatory spirit that reflects the label's mission. Artists show up to the recording session with nothing written. They create spontaneously in the studio and then they edit, arrange, and develop those improvisations into their record. In the case of Brad's Economy album, he added string arrangements to his free-form compositions and a few virtuosic cameos by drummer Mark Giuliana. But this conversation is not just an exploration of making economy. It's also a masterclass in Memphis music history. It's a meditation on the merits of music with layered emotions, a conversation about the relationship between suffering and art and connecting the threads of noise, rock, and bebop, specialization versus broad knowledge, and the value of vulnerability in music. Plus, why Brad doesn't capitalize the letters in his name, and the journey that led him from Memphis to LA by way of southern Mississippi, North Texas, New Jersey, New York, and the Moon. Third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and visit the archive. Hundreds of deep dives, including conversations with other guitar players, including Julian Lage, Lage Lund, Corey Wong, Steve Kahn, Adam Levy, John Leventhal, Eric Krasno, Lionel Lueke, Charlie Hunter, and Doug Womble. Plus, there are talks there with Brad's collaborators like Pete Min, Mark Juliana, Nate Smith, and many others. We are made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content, and patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place to support this project on a deeper level. You can also leave a nice review or some stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Here's me and Brad Allen Williams talking it down earlier this year in Los Angeles. Brad Allen Williams, let's just... Yeah, we can officially start Let's now. officially start. And I just want to say that, you know, I think the last time we spoke properly was when you came to play a guitar overdub on Wolf Jackson's EP. Yeah, I think that's right. And at the time, I knew that you worked out of the bunker a little bit yeah. as an engineer mm-hmm. and that you were kind of a gun-for-hire guitar player I mean you walked in just gunslinging uh, and one of the things that you said that day was that you were about to go out on the road with Jose James Uh doing his Bill Withers project right and I would say like ten days later there you were I don't know where that first video was you did the video before the record was even made there was a live recording where he was announcing the project he was rolling the project Mm -hmm. out. Maybe Sullivan was playing keyboards in the first round. It was before. Sullivan, yeah. And But anyway, there you were. And it was like, oh, man, this is like, this is a real thing. This is, yeah. we went from, you know, you're in like this Fort Greene apartment of my <laughs> friend Randy's studio doing this overdub. And then like a week later, it's like, oh, man, this is like a big project. Oh, she stand me anymore. So she just took the kids and went.
1: you see, I got drinking praline All the money that we had I spent hey. Now I must die by my own hand Cause I'm not man enough to live alone She's better off without me and I'm better off dead now that she's gone
0: And then since then yeah, I've seen you really make the rounds and all these amazing projects you know in nate smith's project and then with Brittany howard and and here i find you in la and we're here to talk about this record that you've made and i just want to take a second to just say like how cool it's been to have met you right at that moment which maybe i just was a little deaf to you and but it seemed like i caught you right there i met you like right as things were about to kind of pop off for you and change
1: well thank you yeah i mean i think different people operate in this business yeah. with different sets of motives. Yeah. And I think at first I was kind of just happy to be around, yeah. you know, and I kind yeah. of feel like the first phase of my career was, um, you know, I just wanted to be working with the best musicians and, yeah. and making the best creative work, you yeah. know, and, and it's only later that you, that I kind of started to try to find, You know, some, I guess, maybe more visible things or just whatever. But, I mean, it all just kind of worked organically. I mean, I've just been fortunate enough to build some relationships
0: with people who, uh, you know, were doing some pretty interesting things. And that's continued. I remember talking to you that first time when we met about Memphis, where you came from originally. And asking you about my friend Charlie Wood, if you had played any gigs with him and what the scene was like in Memphis. But let's, since we're doing this, let's do this again. Let's go back to Memphis, which is where you came from. Yep. And just tell me about what the original uh, environment was for you.
1: Yeah, I mean Memphis is a very interesting place. I was um, talking with someone recently about about Nashville, yeah. and I, you know, <laughs> people who are not from there, they yeah. kind of just assume that those two places would be similar. Yeah, but they really could not be more different. Yeah, like I like Memphis is technically in Tennessee, but <laughs> I always say that Memphis is the capital of the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. That's like real, you know, and and broadly, uh, you know. Just the Mississippi River itself kind of has its own yeah. culture, yes. kind of that run, you know, from New Orleans to, to, to Chicago, Memphis to, to Chicago to even Minneapolis. Minneapolis, absolutely, you know. Um, And so that kind of always permeated, you know. And Charlie Wood, uh, you know, for those who haven't heard of Charlie Wood, I think he's in the UK now. Yes, he is. But um, great organist, and he used to play in an organ trio at this place called King's Palace Cafe on Beale Street in Memphis. I think it was thursday friday and saturday night and then maybe like monday tuesday wednesday he was solo yeah. like just played organ b3 and yeah. sang what's the matter with me i've got this trouble in my head little voice inside me even talking
0: i can't make out what he said
1: The organ trio was the great Calvin Newborn, yeah. um, who, if you know, if you're not familiar with Calvin Newborn, your favorites are familiar with him. He's the great pianist Phineas Newborn Jr.'s brother. Hmm. Their father pronounced it Finus Newborn. They had a band uh, called the Finus Newborn Family Show Band. Hmm. Finus Senior played drums. Uh, Finus later Phineas Jr. played piano. Calvin played guitar. There was a bassist named Tough Green, and they played five nights a week at the Plantation Inn in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is just right across the Mississippi River. Hmm. Calvin, I mean, man, Calvin Newborn, where do you even begin? Like, if you're not familiar, I suggest checking out a recording called Rocks in My Bed by Jimmy Forrest. And that really highlights the greatness of Calvin. (laughs) sort of exactly 50% between BB King and Grant Green. Mm. Like he was a supremely magnificent blues guitar player who also had some bebop language. And like just those two things, I can't think of another player who melded those two things in a more seamless and effortless way than he did. But also he's the guy that like Elvis Presley a young Elvis Presley used to come watch yeah. and all of Elvis Presley's like hip shaking and like Stage mm. jumping all that came from Calvin. They mm. used to call him flying Calvin You mm. know, there's a, a famous picture of him in the smithsonian actually, you know from the I, I want to say the late 1940s 40s yeah. or very early 1950s like jumping in the air with an archtop guitar Just highly influential anyway A much older Calvin Newborn was in Charlie Woods' trio in Memphis. So I used to, you know, ask Doug Womble about Calvin Newborn. He studied with him, you know, back in the day. I never could break through to Calvin like
0: that and have a relationship. He was... You were just younger enough and he was older enough.
1: Yeah, and, and also I think he was kind of rightly, I guess, suspicious of any, you know, like a young player's motives. Like, I feel like maybe I never did enough to really, like, prove...
0: How genuine I was, you know, in in the way that Doug did. I I asked you about Doug when we first met and you'd mentioned that you actually had not overlapped in Memphis, that you had maybe had some contact after the fact in New York. Yeah. But so did you grow up? kind of hanging around these guys and and trying to soak it up i mean how did you get into it i did the best i could yeah. man. you know like i
1: didn't come from like a super musical family yeah so anything that i managed to get into i got into pretty much after age 16 really you know when i could drive yeah or
0: anywhere i could like beg my mom to take me you so know? you are from memphis you obviously are very aware of the heritage and the lineage that you belong to whether or not it- You knew it at the time. I mean, just coming from Memphis, you belong to that lineage. Did you get a sense that you were there, but not able to really be of the place? I mean, did you get more of your experience after you left Memphis, do you think?
1: I was always very, very interested in what was going on there. And I tried to soak up as much of it as I could. Yeah. I just didn't
0: have I wasn't like one
1: of these kids who had a musician parent who was like taking them to gigs and stuff like I didn't have that experience. Yeah my formative musical experience all came by way of records yeah i was a records guy yeah even as a, as a kid i played with records i didn't yeah. play with like
0: whatever yeah. i play outside yeah. you seem to have a kind of mind that is very interested in cataloging the smallest detail of whatever <laughs> you're into right that's right when it comes to instruments you're very interested in the particular nuances of every guitar pickup The background of every instrument, the microphones, the electronics that you're into. If anybody follows you on social media, they know that you're also very particular about the way you record things. There was a recent post about how to evaluate the vinyl pressing on an album that was like shocking to me, how how specific you were. You're into the specificity of things. I care a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, music is
1: something that i have always cared about more yeah. than pretty much anything else yeah and so i kind of just go deep on yeah. every aspect it's like you know to me if it's worth doing i want to do it as well as i can i want to yeah. like serve the art as well as i can yeah. you know and that with my personality just kind of manifests as an attention to detail and that yeah. Yeah, like you're a producer i yeah. i produce a lot too yes. and my sort of ethos that i work with is like when we walk in the studio that's when we get to see how good a job we did yeah you know it's like if you hear somebody i don't know like talk about painting a car or like refinishing furniture they always say that the job is the prep yeah you know when you're actually putting paint on that's the easy part yeah like preparing it is what determines how good of a job and i feel that Hmm. way about producing records it's like when we walk into the studio like our that's job's I, done. Yeah, I get to learn. Yeah. That's the fun
0: part. That's yeah. where I get to like see the fruits of all the work. Yes. you know. Well, and I thought about this over the years following you, knowing this about you, that you also live in a space where, you know, there's specificity in the music that you're making, but you also operate in a sort of a jazz and a jazz adjacent world in which there's always space for something new to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a fine line to walk, especially mm-hmm. when you have a personality that is you know very focused on the details mm-hmm. letting yourself be open to kind of the accidents or or the the unknown moments the surprises in the yeah. music what's weird is, is i don't
1: necessarily see those two things as being in conflict yeah but what it really does on this this new record economy yeah. that i've that's just come out it really um i think i leaned more into the lack of preparation yeah. than i ever have in my life yeah. and that's just down to having a producer you know I think it's it's a role that that a lot of us because I produce records yes that enabled me or empowered me I would say to like let Pete put me in
0: situations that felt uncomfortable because I knew the value of that it's so interesting I mean yeah that's what I think of all of the I just talked to Pete Min about his label and his his philosophy of what he's doing and particularly with this record that that you made with him I mean, it really is putting the whole thing to the test because you are a producer. Yeah. And I, th- I feel as a producer also that the greatest thing that we can learn about production is to allow ourselves to be produced. Yes. You learn so much yes. about your value mm-hmm. when you let somebody else do it. And yet it's also a huge challenge knowing what we know. Yes. And not only is he a producer, but he's a producer engineer. Mm-hmm. So he's also, you know, very technically involved and so are you normally your producer engineer as well mm-hmm. so it's like it really is the whole putting up your hands and saying okay I will allow myself to be taken in this new way
1: it's exhilarating to tell you yeah. the truth yeah you
0: know cuz it's
1: it's just like okay now I get to now I get to see what happens. now I get to see my own self through this other lens yeah and I always said cuz you know I'm a player first yeah. you know yeah and I always said that like the best band leaders are people who have done time in other people's bands and the best side men, side women, are people who have been band leaders. Because like both, in order to be really good in one role, you have to be able to recognize the challenge of another. And I think allowing yourself to be produced, it helps so much to have been a producer. And Hmm. likewise, as a producer, it helps helps so much to have been produced. Man, there's a whole conversation we could have about specialization versus broad-based knowledge. Um, Because I think too, as a rhythm section player, being able to play a little bit of drums, you know, having spent, you know, even if it's not 10,000 hours, having spent 5,000 hours playing drums, having played a few gigs on drums, it'll make you such a better rhythm section player. And mixing makes me a better ensemble player. Yeah. Because I know what kinds of guitar parts I can play that will get in the way of the vocal. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm like, okay, well this guitar sound that sounds cool by itself isn't going to work as well in context. So I think, You know, I guess kind of increasingly over the decades, we've come to kind of venerate the specialist a lot. It's like, oh, this is the pop mixer who like only does this, or like this is the super straight ahead guitar player who only... I really think that does a disservice to just how much these different skills can
0: kind of cross-link and reinforce and become superpowers. You are preaching to the choir here, but I also worry that... It becomes harder for the outside world to know what to make of us when we don't specialize. It does. You know?
1: Yeah. Because it's, I mean, frankly, like there are two aspects to this, right? There's the work itself and then there's the story behind the work. Mm -hmm. And the outside world is going to always engage with the story behind the work Mm -hmm. first. And if they don't engage with that story, they may not ever get to the work. And so that's the real challenge for somebody like me who, yeah. if you know, I'm just trying to live my own authentic artistic truth, yeah. which really is this kind of broader based thing, which may zigzag back and forth from this thing to that thing a yeah. little bit. And it's like, where is the thread for someone who's coming outside who doesn't know anything about me? Yeah. Like, that's the big challenge.
0: I mean, I've often said in my own work that my hope is that if any one person engages with just one thread, mm-hmm. That they will have a sense of who I am and what I'm about and they don't have to engage with the other stuff Right if they only engage with this conversation that there would be some sense of what's important to me right. if They only engage with the production. They would understand something also right that there's something coherent about all yeah. of it Even though it's diverse, but how do you even just go about managing your time? I mean, how do you divide it up? it's hard I work a lot (laughs) you know (laughs) I mean
1: like I pretty much everything I do is work I feel like I work for fun yeah you know it's I mean I just but I just really love this it's you know it's like I'm fortunate uh, I'm not gonna complain about it because I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to just devote pretty much a hundred percent of my time to things that I actually think are really important and that I find really fulfilling. Yeah. But yeah, I work a lot and I just try to follow my heart always. And I've, I've learned to not be afraid to set things aside for a while. That's something that I I used to stress myself out a lot because it's like, okay well, like I'm really getting into practicing drums or whatever. But like, man, I should probably be practicing guitar because I still got so much, you know, but like I've learned to I've learned to just let that go. And like, it's all there. It'll all be there. You know, one day I'm going to die. But until then, I can go back to any of
0: it and develop it all. Do you have a plan? I mean, do you have a goal? Do you set goals? You say, I want to be here. I want to have achieved X, Y or Z. Or is that not how you're approaching it. You're following it as it comes.
1: Well, that's something that I never did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or I had little mini goals, yeah. you know, but I think my problem when I was younger was that I set my goals too low. Uh-huh. I came from, you know, you, we were talking about Memphis yeah. earlier. And I I got to be careful cuz I don't really want to speak out of turn yeah. about this place where I grew up and where I love, but yeah. there's a certain culture there of what I think we Memphians think of as humility but it's really just self-limiting behavior Mm -hmm. you know where you where you like especially like I grew up not rich yeah (laughs) you know what I mean like I don't want to um you know insult where I came from yeah but like yeah right I'm first generation college educated you know and I think especially in that kind of southern U.S. Millieu. if you're working class there's a, a lot of know your place yeah. energy and so i think having internalized a lot of that i like like my goal in high school was to just make a living playing music some kind of way. Like I didn't care if it was like playing in wedding bands. I just wanted to make a living sure. playing. That was about as high as I could dream. Yeah. You know, like in
0: that place and time. I understand. And and it's interesting that idea of setting the bar too low. Yeah. I mean, I've encountered that. Not not so much in my own life, but people that I came up with, I grew up in Wisconsin and I saw I've seen that also where it's mm-hmm. not that the Midwestern politeness the politeness and yeah, and, and, yeah and, and a little bit of that self-limiting also yeah. mm-hmm. right so your goal was just if i can make a living yeah and then
1: i had to keep refining but you know i never had that like purpose of like i'm gonna be the most famous guitar player in the world you right. know from like like i couldn't envision that didn't seem
0: accessible or to make to a me. contribution to be known yeah was well, that even something not i mean necessarily it
1: wasn't really in my purview yeah. like it did it just wasn't yeah. it wasn't there you know and so i've kind of that's been a real struggle for me as an, an adult to yeah. kind of like as my career progresses it's like okay like how do i even envision this yeah. next step for myself having to do that as an as so an where artist. did you go where did you go to college well i had kind of a winding path yeah um it's a great yeah. segue yeah. Uh, because i couldn't imagine much more i went to the university of southern mississippi first where I was fortunate to have actually a great teacher there, huh. uh, this uh, saxophone player, Larry Panella, like yeah. extremely talented and serious musician. Yeah. Uh, and then after two years, I kind of had my first like, OK, I can imagine more for myself now. Yeah. And I transferred to the University of North Texas, uh-huh. uh, finished up there. And then I needed a way to get to New York because it's all I ever wanted but I couldn't imagine myself just moving there. So I got a master's degree at William Patterson, which was transformative because I got to spend a lot of time around a lot of great musicians, peers and mentors, but in particular, Harold Mayburn Jr. and Mulgrew Miller, who who was the director at the time. Wow. Who were both from Memphis
0: originally. Did they take to you in some way, do you think? Or you have some common... A little bit, yeah. I mean, we talked about it. It was yeah. it was there, you know. Yeah. That connection was there, especially with Harold. You know, when you describe how different Memphis and Nashville are, I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know. But w- one thing I will say, having spent a little time in both of them, is that Memphis feels like a decidedly blacker city. It seems like it the is. African-American yes. presence in the city is very strong. Yes. Nashville doesn't necessarily feel that way. Right. So the question I wanted to ask you earlier is, like, if you felt some kind of more affinity to black culture or black Southern culture coming from Memphis. I
1: did. Well, in particular, when I was in high school, I was a weird kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, the even just, like, sitting at a table at yeah. lunch, the only kids who would let me sit with them were the black kids. Yeah. That was my social kind of circle. Yeah. When I was young, I, w- I want to be careful a yeah. little bit because my experience growing up in Memphis was not a black experience. That's right. You know, like there are challenges that I did not have to face. Yes. There are certain things that I did not have in common. Yes. You know, as a as a result of just not having faced certain pressures. But another thing that's a distinction between Nashville and Memphis, though, that that is perhaps equally important, Nashville is very much about its business. Mm-hmm in memphis you will find so many talented people who are just like just doing their thing right and in nashville
0: like the commercial potential of these things is seems to there seems to be a greater awareness of that yes sure and that self-limiting maybe wouldn't have come up so much if you came out of nashville and not out of memphis yeah right i mean i would have had models for like for getting heard by yeah. the wider world or for even sure. having ambitions to know what uh, goal to set for yourself because you'd seen other people achieve it right so you get to william patterson and there's harold mayburn jr and mulgrew, mulgrew miller yeah what and, a privilege and to before get to
1: mulgrew was james williams another
0: yeah. great memphis piano yeah. player that's actually who
1: i went there yeah. to study, anticipating being kind of mentored by james williams yeah. and he sort of sadly passed away um right as i got there so mulgrew kind of stepped right in it's no exaggeration to say that he changed my life yeah mulgrew miller in ways that are not literally related to music and i'm not saying necessarily that these lessons were explicit things that he imparted to me yeah it was more being around him and observing him i could learn some things i think Hmm. it was from mulgrew Again, not directly, but through observation that I learned the difference between humility and modesty. Mm-hmm. You know, We're talking about that Memphis self-limiting yeah. thing. Mulgrew Miller, I never got the sense that he wasn't aware of who he was. But I also hmm. never got the sense that he had the need to minimize who he was to protect other people. Yeah. you know, But I also just got the sense that he treated his gift as a gift. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, but my perception at the time was that he was as grateful for his gift as we all were (laughs) Mm -hmm. for his gift. Mm -hmm. And my relationship with the concept of humility growing up where I grew up was Mm self-minimization, that you have to minimize yourself. Mm -hmm. And Mulgrew may have been the first great model I ever had for there being another relationship to humility Mm -hmm. where and and kind of i feel like the insight that i took away was becoming obsessed with minimizing yourself Mm -hmm. is just an opposite polarity self-centeredness sure it's just egocentric in the opposite polarity Mm -hmm. whether you're presenting yourself as better than everyone else or worse than everyone else you still have yourself at the center and that's a thing that I never got the sense that Mulgrew had himself at the center. He had the art at the center. Yeah,
0: yeah that, that is such an interesting distinction. And, and I appreciate you talking about where the ego steps in, because it, it also plays out in the way we make music, mm-hmm. right? Allowing ourselves to avoid judgment, but still have criteria, you right. know? And that, there's a similarity to me in, in that as well. Like, we can be aware of where we can improve and when it's good and when it's not good mm-hmm. without getting into this kind of self-judgment space that mm-hmm. I think I certainly have suffered from a lot it's like that thing when um debating someone you
1: know it's like debate the point not the person yeah 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 you know and it's and it's like with the work it's like we can um adjudicate yeah our work not our own worthiness
0: our yes our worthiness beyond all of that that's a deeply jazz centric education that you got you were focused on playing jazz guitar it sounds like
1: yes i mean and that's Still, I feel like whatever the word jazz yeah. means, you know, yeah. and whatever implications that that word has yeah. and what history it has, we could unpack. But yeah. um, things that have typically been lumped under that banner yeah. very much form the core of my artistic identity yeah. still,
0: I feel like, internally. I mean, I understand we can unpack it in a number of ways. Yeah. I've, I've started thinking about a jazz education as uh, equivalent to like a french cuisine education 100 percent. i say this all the time the metaphor i use is yeah. an
1: east asian studies degree right like it's not going to make you japanese yeah right exactly. you're going to learn some language yeah you're going to learn some history yeah but in order to actually meaningfully learn anything yeah. about the culture and what has historically been called jazz is a culture yeah like you have to immerse You know, and that that's a thing where I think a lot of um, my classmates at various schools. There were some missed opportunities Mm -hmm. there because, you know, living in North Jersey, William Patterson, you're just very close to New York City. And even and also there's this other thing. New Jersey has a really, really rich organ tradition, you know, like Newark down through Philadelphia, like all like there's just such a rich tradition myself and maybe a few other classmates. Yeah, We're venturing out and actually hanging a lot of our other classmates seemed like they wanted to get more from the classroom than from the, the actual scene. thing that's yeah. going on it's just so enlightening to be actually in the places where the music is being made i mean yeah. it seems so obvious yeah. to say but it's like there are certain things that you just can't get in a classroom sure
0: so you got your master's mm-hmm.
1: then did you move to the to brooklyn or the city or what to brooklyn yeah yeah Well, I kind of hung out in New Jersey playing organ stuff for a while. Who were the organ players that you were playing with? Pat Bianchi a little Uh bit. There's a North Jersey mainstay, you know, Radom Schwartz, Uh who's, who's around forever. Dan Kostelnik is another organist there. Jared Gold, who's playing with Dave Stryker for many years, fantastic organist. There were quite a few, yeah. you know, and to tell you the truth, most of my work with these organists was at one place, which was Cecil Brooks's club in West Orange, Cecil's, which is now defunct for many years. But that was, I think, 2010 or 2011, it yeah. closed down. But that was the organ hang in North Jersey. Because, you know, so many musicians live in Montclair, yeah. just right there. So I think for uh, three or four years after getting my master's, I kind of hung out there, just there were musicians that were so much better than me. I was learning so much, you know, Bruce Williams, great alto player. One of my, I mean, I consider him like family, you know, no relation, but um, (laughs) you know, I learned so much from him during that time and, and
0: continue to. Were you playing mostly hollow body jazz sound at that point? Or were you already starting to bring in all the interest in gear and other sounds into your playing? It's all always been there. I mean, I
1: think when when
0: I was younger, I had less of a fully
1: formed concept of what I wanted to be and a little bit less courage Mm -hmm. about being myself. Mm -hmm. So I spent a fair bit of energy trying to tick the boxes of what stylistic tropes I thought I was operating in. Hmm. Eventually, that all just kind of fell by the
0: way. I just got too tired to keep that up and just kind of became more authentically who I've always been. Which is what, though? I mean, it's a lot of things. To be most authentically yourself, it seems like it involves an openness to a lot of different things. I think that's right. You know, people talk about the concept of staying
1: in your lane. Yeah. And um, I've just swerved all over the highway as long as I can remember. It took me a while to actually understand that that's who I am, Yeah. you know? Because it's so hard sometimes. I mean, this is another reason why a producer is such a valuable role. Sometimes it's hard for a person to see their own identity from inside themselves. It's so true. Eventually I just kind of decided to just be as honest as I could musically all the time. And try to have some trust, or maybe faith is the better word, that uh, an artistic identity would become Evident to others around You know because it it all makes sense to me You know but like that's kind of A big part of the core of who I am And what I've done and aspired to From a very early age from high school Or even before has been finding And connecting threads Yeah, Like I love to see how these two things that seem Completely unrelated on the surface Actually trace back to the same source Mm -hmm. Or trace from different sources But kind of intertwined for a second And then split off again Yeah, Uh, And I think I remember, um, wow, because I, I was real into like Sonic Youth, yeah, right in high school, yeah. and Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. and My Bloody Valentine and bands like that. And then I heard Derek Bailey. I don't and know I'm, who that
0: is. Who's Derek? Oh, Bailey?
1: Derek Bailey is a fantastic guitar player who operated in a totally improvised space. Uh-huh. Look up, look up duets with Tony Oxley. Like okay. there are videos you can find on YouTube. Okay. It's, fa- it's fantastic. <laughs> but like it was completely non-tonal, completely leveraging the sort of unpitched noises that a guitar can make. And it's like, oh, like this relates, like this relates. And then it's like, you know, I was already in high school, a friend kind of put me onto Charlie Parker and I didn't understand it, but I liked it. Then from there I got into Coltrane and then I got into late Coltrane. And I'm like, whoa, well, this kind of relates to this Derek Bailey. Hmm. And then I got into Sam Rivers, and yeah. it's like, this relates to all these things. And then I got into Sun Ra, and yeah. it's like, wow. You know, you would think that like Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. and John Coltrane or Charlie Parker would be completely unrelated, but they're not. Yeah. Like, they're, there's this whole kind of yeah. thing where all of this kind of comes together.
0: Actually, this maybe is a good way to get back to your record. The one okay. That. So my understanding, both of the philosophy of Pete's label and also of this particular record, is you go in fresh. Nothing written. Nothing written, and there's a kind of a sense that maybe we're going to take somebody like you who you're multi-instrumentalist, but your primary instrument is the guitar, and we're going to start you out not playing guitar. We're going to give you a modular synthesizer or something else to, to mess with or play the guitar through the synth I've seen you talk about.
1: Yeah, something like that. I mean, I think
0: that, well, guitar
1: presents a particular challenge because the electric guitar in particular is such a 20th century phenomenon. Yeah. And it was so... During our lifetimes and slightly before, it's just such, I mean, ever since the Beatles, basically, it's been such a dominant cultural force. Even just the image of an electric guitar as iconography Mm -hmm. was ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very easy to wander into a dark alley of the guitar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> that you didn't even realize you'd wandered into mm-hmm. and signify things that you weren't intending to signify. You know? It's like you plug a Stratocaster into a Marshall and bend a string. Yeah. You're triggering associations in other people's minds, whether you recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. And one of the more interesting challenges and really kind of one of the, the fun parts of doing this record with Pete was, man, let's, let's see how much we can not, do, do any that. of that yeah and i kind of have have a restlessness in my yeah. relationship with the guitar and pete very much does perhaps yeah. more than me yeah so we you know we kind of leaned into this yeah. idea of like let's see how we can just use this in unconventional ways yeah and so like you said plugging it into synthesizers yeah. like i don't think there was a single amp used on the
0: record maybe maybe one or two there's a solo there's one solo that you play uh, like a traditional jazz sound it sounds like you're playing on yeah yeah that sounds like maybe there could have been an amp that,
1: that there might have been an amp in fact on that one but like but even that was decontextualized yes. you know it's yes. like i wanted to, i was kind of literally referencing grant green yeah, and totally. Benson, but in an environment that like we're not accustomed to he- yeah accustomed to hearing those yeah. like an a 158 a uh, modular synthesizer yeah. ostinato in yeah. and, and a string quartet yeah. in the background But there was one track in particular um, that we called Boomer that where, and this is again, the genius of a producer. Pete is like, you know what, man, we've been doing this, we've been running from the guitars tropes this whole time. What if we just do one where we do the opposite? And it's very much kind of almost like an Eno oblique strategies kind of thing. It's like, whatever you're thinking, do the opposite. You know, And that's what we did on this one. And it ended up being one of our favorite ones. You know, I got a distorted guitar. Yeah. It was like a Gibson SG yeah. plugged into a mode yeah. clipping and just played the most obvious pentatonic rock riff yeah. I could imagine, but it ended up being in an odd meter. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, now we need to change. So I went to the four chord, like yeah. literally the most obvious yeah. move. But somehow we managed to
0: make it not sound like those Mm cliches and I'm pretty proud of that talking to him also I get the sense that he's playing with the idea of control Mm -hmm. in general he wants the artists to have to confront surrendering a certain amount of control yeah and for somebody like you who is very particular about what you're going for I could imagine what kinds of emotions must have come up in you it was exhilarating yeah you know I love anything that knocks me out of my normal process
1: and I did get to indulge that side of myself uh, by writing the string yes because that's something where I could take it away and I'm like okay I can obsess over every note make sure everything is exactly as I want and then the string players come in and it's like okay can we articulate this differently can we do this so that part of my identity did get to be represented yes. in the project in that way. What it is, is just me being detail-oriented. Yeah. It's back to that thing earlier. It's yeah. like, I don't know shit about writing for yeah. strings. Like, I, you know what I mean? I've done it before yeah. on records I've produced, yeah. but, like, but only in that capacity. Yeah. And so it's just me knowing... It's me like, having enough experience with records to know what sounds good sure. and enough commitment to stay with it until I get something that's satisfactory to me. Yeah. Did you write it pen and paper? Did you m- m- mock it up in MIDI? What would you do? Um, I had no time yeah. and so I had a few very long flights yeah. and I had a one octave MIDI keyboard and so I did it all on the plane. Yep. You know,
0: it's yep. all done on planes. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed about the rollout of your record is the photography and the imagery, mm-hmm. which is also very, you know, it's very stylized. Yeah. Like you, you, and I think your vibe and your look already is pretty stylized. Yes. But like. It's I'm not being dismissive, about. It. I mean, that's a huge part of what we do is sure. to create a kind of a visual brand for the work that we that Fortunately, we I come about it
1: completely honestly. Yeah, honestly, like yeah. I didn't have to like fake any of that. Yeah It's just like I have very strong um, Visual things that I like yeah. things that I'm drawn to and it's it's the same shit I liked when I was five years old, Yeah, which is what I'm very fascinated with the concept of alternate futures or what what people in past eras would imagine the future to be like and Anything that's like that, I'm drawn to. Both sonically, musically, visually. Yeah. Um, I love science fiction film. Yeah. If everything I did could look
0: like uh, Space is the Place, yeah. the Sun Ra film, yeah. uh, I would be psyched. <laughs> yeah. The relationship particularly with the synthesizers of the 70s, mm-hmm. which were evocative of what we believe the future would sound like. Mm-hmm. And now we're in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's both futuristic still to us, but also somehow feels like it's not vintage but it's evocative of a past yeah so it's in a very strange space like it emotionally it's in a strange space where it's not the future or the past right the whole thing i'm ever trying to find artistically is
1: layered emotion Uh
0: uh-huh
1: one of my favorite ever grant green tracks is um we've only just begun Uh off of visions Uh uh-huh And it's so incredibly sad, but the song is this incredibly optimistic song and just like the kind of the clash of those two things, you know? Another project that I really look to in that way is Lady in Satin, the fantastic Billie Holiday record. It's so lush and so gorgeous, and so many of the, of the songs are about love, also heartbreak. I'm a fool to want you. But then, like, she's also nearing the end of her life. I'm a fool to want you. And you hear all of that, like, real life experience in her performance.
0: To want a love that can't be true. I love that's there are
1: others still Anything where there are two things that are seemingly in conflict that, but that are existing together, like, yes.
0: that's where I want to be. That's what you're going for. Yeah. You sort of alluded to it earlier, but it sounds like there was a time in your childhood when you were a misfit. You did not fit in. Yeah. There were not a lot of other kids that were probably into all yeah. that stuff. And that you stick around long enough and you, you have at it over time and it turns out that you you there's this you know this beautiful space for you you find your other people in the world that are into the same stuff yeah i mean and that's
1: very accurate i mean it was it's true you know every time and place in which you grow up has its own challenges and mine certainly was not the friendliest place for a weird kid with yeah. spe- who, who hyper focused on specialized interests yeah if you if you were weird in a certain way where i grew
0: up like it was literal daily violence yeah it was dangerous yeah so do you remember like by the time you got to north texas it sounds like maybe that would be the place where you like got to talk to other people who were there the myths misfits from their yeah their towns or whatever and like oh you geek out about the same stuff too you like this same yeah stuff? i mean north texas and especially new york city
1: yeah you know i always said that you know New York City in the early 2000s yeah. was the coolest kid and the weirdest kid from every high school in yeah. America. Yeah. Like, yeah. all ended up in New York yeah. City, you know? So that's just another thing. It's like, I feel like if you hang in with anything long enough, you find your place. Yeah, You know,
0: it all works out. Yeah. Is Texas a different kind of South than Tennessee? Oh, very different. And and Denton, Texas in particular, yeah. in, in the early
1: 2000s, was a weird place but, in the best way.
0: But Nora had just come out of there, right? She had Nora just Johnson. come out. She
1: was a little before my yeah. time and snarky puppy was just after you they
0: were there okay so
1: snarky puppy started in my living room i mike league lived in the garage apartment behind the house i rented and uh the first and i had a drum set i had a little ludwig club date kit in my living room and some amps and uh mike's garage apartment wasn't quite big enough to hold the rehearsals so he used to hold them in my front room so and do you remember what was the band at that point the band was as i remember yeah It was Bob Lanzetti on Uh guitar. He's always been there. Mike Maher, Maz, on trumpet. Trumpet. He's always been there. I believe Sarah Giacovino was playing trombone Uh at the time. I think she still lives in New York now. Maybe a a Chicago drummer now named John Diedemeyer Uh or Steve Pruitt, Uh um, who was, I think, originally from Oklahoma City, was maybe one of them. This is an interesting thing about North Texas is there is a lot of fantastic music going on in Dallas. Yes. And... The school didn't really deal with it very much at the time. Yeah. You know, but but Mike did. That's kind of one of the one of the things about
0: Mike League is that and he went and engaged with particularly with the gospel community there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And there was some of that. Like Sean Martin was around North Texas and he would sometimes play on recitals and stuff. And some of Erica Badu's group, like Braylon Lacey on bass, he was around. Great drummer Jamil Byram. Uh They were around. But like we were all just doing gigs. And so sometimes like the school kids would end up on gigs with the gospel kids yeah and you know Mike kind of was able to like bring those things together into yeah. his group yeah but what's interesting is I never really played with them yeah you know uh, once or twice a couple of little things yeah. you know early on in like the family dinner concept yeah. I did like a couple of shows at Rockwood yeah. Music Hall with them when they were all new to New York right. I preceded them to New York by a little bit yeah And I don't really know what that's about. Mike and I were friends. We're like really good friends. We did a bunch of gigs together. We used to play blues gigs together in Texas all the time with one singer in particular. Interesting. And, uh, but like when he was doing his own band, I was just a little bit older, you know, like Mike was, was kind of coming into North Texas while I was already kind of trying to be on my way out. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, just for whatever reason we, we, and I think artistically we kind of come from different places and like, you know. I have massive respect for him. Hopefully that's mutual, but like, but we're still friends and we still talk occasionally. I think he lives
0: in Spain now, so we don't, we don't hang out very much, but. That was the kind of environment that you were in those. That's the generation of people that were there. And then in New York, you got to see, like you say, here are the, what'd you say? The nerdy and the cool kid. Yeah. The weirdest kid and the coolest kid from every high school. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I guess the reason I mention that is because what makes us weird at a certain time in our life is actually the thing that. Is our kind of superpower yes a hundred
1: percent you know like
0: i really i really believe that it's like i'm so grateful that
1: i that i protected yes. what it was that mattered to me yes and it's you know somebody i did an interview recently where yeah. somebody asked me about you know what made you start being creative yeah. and it's just like man i always was
0: yeah. maybe it's like what made me protect it is the better question it's an interesting question That I would never ask, but then I think to myself, why would I never ask that question? What made you start being creative? Because I don't know that it's a choice. Yeah, it's Um, not. I didn't feel like it to me. I mean, it raises the question, is it possible to encourage creativity? What we do know is it's possible to To discourage discourage it. it. We know that that's a reality. Right. If you are a man or a boy
1: in the Southern working class milieu in which I grew up, and you outwardly express a love for beauty and beautiful things you will have literal ver- literal violence yeah. perpetrated upon and, you. I mean, that's just the fact, you know? And so, you know, I didn't feel like I was being courageous at yeah. the time. I think maybe I just didn't have the social skills to understand that I should kill off these parts of myself. But, like, whatever it was, I'm grateful that I still have them, you know, because right. it's made a space for me to live an adult life with
0: fulfillment and purpose. Right. Yeah. You have also, you know, talking about your aesthetic, visual aesthetic, you capitalize your name in a specific way Mm. now the song titles are spelled in a kind of unusual looking way Mm. you've gone to great lengths to kind of really cultivate the total aesthetic space that that you're in it's just things that look cool to me yeah like the title Economy has yeah. that character ligature. Yeah.
1: I kind of every project, I like to have like one thing that has a weird character. Yeah. It's just things that look interesting to yeah. me. And it's really no more, no deeper than that. And your name not capitalizing the B, the A, the W. In certain typefaces, I just think typographically it looks yeah. better. Yeah. Like I think a lowercase B and a lowercase A yeah. kind of have a uh, a, simila- a symmetry that yeah. a capital B and a capital A don't. Yeah. Just, to, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with typography, yeah. like vintage. You know, lettering and style yeah. in the way, like, I don't yeah.
0: know. It's all just about that. I think that's highly revealing. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Just in terms of the, like I said, that's what I understood about you this, the day I met you. Yeah. It was just like every aspect of the experience has been considered mm. and there is an attention mm-hmm. to detail and to beauty and what you see as beautiful. For better or for worse. Sometimes I think the biggest risk for me yeah. is too much attention. Yeah.
1: There were a couple of moments on the recording of this record where Pete is like, no, it's done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this is really good. Yeah. And I didn't feel that way at the time. But when I walked away from it and spent a week away and came back, I could then hear it the way Pete heard it. Yeah. I don't really have a hard time letting it go if things aren't as I planned. Right. But, like,
0: I plan a lot. (laughs) right, right. <laughs> you know right, yeah right well that's what you said at the beginning of the conversation no i mean it's like for example i'm very willing when i produce people to let them stay shaggy and loose and like yes just know when it's done me too i'm willing to let other people stay raw raw yeah but me too. it's harder for me to let myself stay raw
1: yeah i mean because it's vulnerable yes and i mean and that's the thing you know i had an artist with a, yeah. I mean, a conversation with yeah. an artist i was working with recently yeah. it's like every i every time i'd send him a vocal comp yeah there would be three things that he didn't like about it and they were always my three favorite things yeah yeah and I'm just like man you know like at some point you've got to know the difference between concern for the quality of the work yeah and compulsive flaw elimination yes and like like what I always say is you know if you if you picture like you know a photo of a an elderly family member you know your favorite photo of them is not going to be the one yeah where everything it's gonna be the one that tells the story most authentically in their face, in this photo of who they are. That's right. The the most personality, the most authentic representation yeah. of who they are. But your favorite photo of yourself is going to be the one in which
0: you look the best. Sure. We're all trying to hide behind perfection yeah. in some way, you know?
1: And so that's, again, the value of a producer yeah. is somebody who can say to you, I know why you
0: don't like this. I know why you're running from this. I'm going to challenge you to embrace it. You know, I'm reminded of, I spent time, particularly at the end of his life with Tommy LaPuma, who was a great producer. I always felt that his compassion and empathy for the artists that he worked with in some ways stemmed from his having been an outsider in his own childhood. Mm. He had gone through a, like a physical thing when he was young and he spent, he was in the hospital and he had suffered. Yeah. All artists are suffering on some level. And so he was able to kind of tune into that with people and honor it mm-hmm. and to use it even you uh, know that's
1: so resonant to me yeah
0: because i like
1: it's not an exaggeration for me to say that music saved my life like there are times in my life that i can look back on that it's all i had mm-hmm. you know and i think when your relationship with music is forged through that your work is always different mm-hmm. it's like the Many artists I know who have gone through that, whether they suffered for their, for their art yeah. or whether art was just there for them yes, while, while they, they were, were suffering, suffering. Like your relationship with the work is different. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about like you know, all, the, all these ways in that young people have. Um, yeah. That's something that, like fortunately, yeah. this is not a lamentation yeah. by any stretch, yeah. but uh, you see so many young people engaging with music at a technically high level, yeah. and that piece doesn't seem to be yes. there. Always, You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, okay, you're really good at this because your parents put you in the right place at yes. the right time to study with the right person yeah. or you got all of this. But like, it's, it's a little bit rarer and hopefully continually becoming rarer, you know, for, for the sake of humanity, but to have somebody who's really has that relationship with their art where they've, they've suffered in tandem with it, yes. I guess. yeah, And I think what you say about the empathy is so spot on. I think, um, you know, our responses to any sort of challenge or trauma can take a few different directions. You know, uh, on one hand you can completely become desensitized to inflicting that same pain and trauma on others. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Hmm. it can become your whole life's mission to ensure that no one else has to feel the way you felt. Yes. And when you're more predisposed toward that second thing, and you're also working within this discipline, the amount of empathy that you can tap into to help an artist, to see what an artist is going through in the vulnerable moments of creating, Mm -hmm. or to see an artist relating to some trauma that they may have had through their art, and to like work them through that, and be a facilitator to help them give birth to this work that may be so important to them that it then its importance rubs off on the audience Mm -hmm. that's like such a powerful asset i mean and it's one of the most magnificent things about about the life in art or a life with art is that you can turn something disadvantageous into something so powerful yes and
0: connective and connective you can take that suffering and actually somehow help people through it and people will feel their own truth through your truth you know brad we could do this all afternoon man congratulations on the record i i think it's really really special i hope more people get to hear it thank you i do too i'm proud of it you know and that
1: and that's the thing that feels good whether anyone else hears it or not yeah i feel good about the work yeah
0: there he was my friends brad Allen williams a sensitive and thoughtful soul i'll be back again in your headspace before you know it until then i'll talk to you soon this has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO
1: Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.